I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I'm so excited to discuss my sponsor today, which is Page One Books, because my summer book bundle is ready on pageonebooks.com. And the bundle that I've put together includes three books that I picked, uh, Montauk by Nicola Harrison, More Myself by Alicia Keys, and I Miss You When I Blink by Mary Laura Philpot, all of which have been on this podcast here. Uh, it includes a Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Beach Tote, a cute little library card pencil slash cosmetic case, and a water bottle for staying hydrated, plus a little... Um, thing of sun lotion. So go to page1books.com, page one with the number one. So page number one books.com and check out my page one books summer bundle. Buy it as a gift, a housewarming, if you actually go somewhere or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> page one books.com. Welcome to Inside and Out, the body edition of the July Book Blast. This is Thursday's Body Blast. Let's call it that, the Body Blast. And I'm calling it that because one author is a ballerina, one is a yoga teacher, and one investigates DNA. So that's why I hope you'll enjoy these varied takes on the human body. Libby Copeland is an award-winning journalist who writes about culture, science, and human behavior. Her book, The Lost Family, published in March, looks at the impact of home DNA testing on the American family. Although I would say it's more of like a nail-biting kind of mystery, amazing book. Anyway, a staff reporter and editor for the Washington Post for over a decade, she now writes for from New York for publications including The Atlantic, Slate, New York Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, The New York Times, The New Republic, Esquire, and many more. She currently lives in Westchester, New York with her husband and two children. Welcome, Libby. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I appreciate it. So this is our second sort of take at the beginning. We had a little chit-chat about Zibby and Libby, so I'll spare redoing that. <laughs> I'll just okay. say mine is a nickname and yours is not, and it's thrilling to be here with another Ibby. So anyway, can you please tell listeners what The Lost Family is about and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a feature writer for a long time, and I'm particularly interested in how, you know, culture and human behavior and that the intersection with technology. So how does technology push and pull us in certain directions? Why do we do the things we do? How do we define ourselves and why do we define ourselves that way? And so I got interested in DNA testing a few years ago, and most, a lot of people DNA test out of a sense that it's going to deepen their understanding of their roots. And oftentimes they're thinking maybe many generations back, and that's the typical scenario. But there's a significant minority of people who discover something sort of more immediate and surprising. So something that sort of upends their understandings of their of their own origins, of their how they came to be. Maybe one of their parents isn't genetically related to them. Maybe they have a sibling they didn't know about. Maybe their donor conceived. Maybe they're adopted and they weren't told if they're from an older generation. So these are all sort of scenarios that have been kind of happening for the last five to 10 years in this space. And I, I thought it was such a kind of a broad social phenomenon. I wanted to kind of pull it together and I wanted to shape it around this really compelling genetic detective story of this one woman named Alice who had this astonishing discovery like many years back, eight years ago, which is like a very long time in the context of this technology and kind of methodically went through all the theories of what it could be. And it wasn't any of the expected explanations. And her story is really meant 
meant to be the thing that like propels you through the book because it's so compelling and she's so intelligent and sort of dogged in her research. It was. It was like a page turning thriller almost. And I every every dead end she would get to, I'm like, no. It's kind of an existential thriller, right? Because it's not the whodunit. It's not like who killed who? It's like a true to life nonfiction mystery of how she came to be. Like, how did she get her family history so wrong? How was it that she thought that she was entirely or almost entirely Irish American? And she finds out she's half Ashkenazi Jewish. And how do you explain that? And then what do you make of it? And what's interesting is Alice's family is like, there's seven Irish Catholic siblings and you know, they each make something different of it. And you see through their different experiences and the different experiences of other people that I follow in the book is that like, you know, we're very selective and thoughtful and intentional. And we each take something different from this question of like, how much does genetics get to tell me about who I am? It's true. And like all the clues that she would find, even when you were saying like, some things that are like, what did you, you had some funny analogy, like the gorilla walking across the basketball court. Did I just totally ruin that? But it was some, right. Like some things that just like hit her in the face that were so obvious, but she missed them. And then others that were like so tiny and so hard. I mean, and the, the fate and the elements that had to align for her to figure out her story. And then you think about all the people who didn't figure it out, right? Like so many more people didn't have the answers and never will. And what do we make of that? I don't know. It's all right. very like, you know, a little woo-woo. Like. <laughs> but like the people who like were born and lived and died and never knew that, for instance, maybe the man who raised them that they called dad wasn't genetically related to them, right? So there's all these kind of what if questions that you hear people talking about in the book. Like, would what if they had known? Would they have been better off? Is it better that they didn't know? Because, and the the struggle with that is that everyone who's telling you their story is telling you from the perspective of already knowing, already being invested in knowing the truth, not being able to unknow it. And so being in most cases, very glad to know it. But at the same time, like you have to wonder, like, like for generations, people didn't know, they didn't have the capacity to know. If, for instance, you know, if, for instance, they had a half sibling living, you know, 50 miles away and they would have wanted to connect with that person if only they'd known or it might have totally upset their family dynamic. Right. We don't know. I mean, now I feel like I have to go back into my 23andMe results and just check (laughs) every single cousin, like all my results. And I know you talked about your results in the book, too. At first, to be honest, I was like, oh, she must be writing this because she had some huge surprise show up in your DNA. And it turns out not too big a surprise, like your 1% right. Korean or something that was like you didn't expect, but. It disappeared, the 1% Korean. So I'm not Korean at Oh, all. it disappeared. Okay. Oh, so <laughs> scratch that. All right. Forget yeah. it. All right. Yeah. Mine were completely predictable as well in a very, very boring way. But I keep thinking, almost hoping like, maybe, maybe there's some way there'll be somebody else. And then people like Alice who have learned the whole science behind it. I don't know. I mean, is it better to know or not to know? What do you think? Like, would, do you want to know? Would you want to know? Yeah, it's hard to say. So, I mean, one of the things that I found over and over again was that when somebody discovered something key about their genetic origins, they were glad to know even when the truth was very upsetting. So, for instance, I interviewed a woman who, who understood her origins to be the result of a rape. And this was something she came to after doing the DNA testing, after unraveling the identity of her biological father, after talking to her mom about it. 
And her mom had gone through this profound trauma and was like, listen, here's why I didn't tell you. And these were the circumstances. So even for her, she was like, I'm grateful to know the truth. This explains so much. I grew up in a house where there was a lot of trauma and abuse. There was a lot of not talking about things that were very important. And this gives me context. This answers questions. I can go back and look to the age of zero and I can reinterpret it. And now it makes sense. So I was struck by that. I heard that over and over again. And I heard that from people who had a sense of agency in the process of looking, right? You've got your autonomous, you spit into the ballot, you make meaning, you decide the narrative, you decide the timeline, you decide if you're going to contact your relatives. So that's like a profound thing. Very interesting. The value that we place on the truth of knowing something key about ourselves. But then there's people on the other side of the story, right? And sometimes their narratives are being disrupted in a way that they're not comfortable with. So it might be the person who's the seeker, who's the secret keeper, right? That I, I've been keeping a genetic secret. I don't see it as a secret. I, you know, it was a matter of self-protection. It was, um, it was a very reasonable decision given the cultural stigmas at the time 60 years ago, right? And we can't judge the past by present standards. So perhaps you're someone who it never was a secret to you, but, but, you know, but you knew about it but you weren't going to tell anyone. And now someone's coming into your life and saying, you know, I, I want to talk about this. And maybe you're not ready to talk about it. You're not ready for your family to know. Or maybe you're the child of that person. And now there's this half sibling coming into your life. Maybe this half sibling was born before you. And they're saying something about something your mom or your dad did that is very painful to accept. So I tell the story in the book of a woman who, you know, she's a foundling, which wasn't a term I knew before I started writing the book. And now you probably already knew the term or certainly you know it from reading the book, but it's somebody who is like, like kind of like left and found, right? Like as a baby. So she was left on a pastor's doorstep at four days old and she was conceived before the other children that her, that her mom then went on to have. And when she connects with them and she says, hey, listen, I'm your biological half sister. And this is the story of how I came to be. And I would love to have you in my life. Their response is our mother wouldn't do that. Right. And and their mother is dead. And it is incredibly difficult for them to reconcile this idea that their mother could do something that maybe causes them to think twice about about her, about her character, about this the, the difficult position that she was in. So it's one thing for the people on the one side, and then it's the other thing for the people on the other side. And there are situations where those things can be reconciled, and those are beautiful reunions. And there are situations where, like, I may be really genetically closely related to you, but our interests are directly divergent at this precise moment when we could be getting to know each other and in a really intimate relationship, but we can't be because because my existence threatens your identity. <laughs> and those are the really interesting and painful stories that that I wanted to explore along with like the gorgeous reunions and the stories of people expanding their families, right? It's not all happy endings. It's not all sad endings. It's complicated. It's very complicated. And even you even talked about how in some families, the context of how one person had been looking for so long and the other, and she had time to process that. And then the person that she found had to deal with it right away with like right. an influx of all that information. And yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I can't imagine it would be a lot to have that show up in an email. <laughs> versus, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because like, so when Alice tests, it's 2012, the databases are really small. So it takes her two and a half years to unravel the truth. And like, there's a lot of twists and turns. But if she tested now, it would be maybe like a matter of a few days or weeks. And so you see the difference, right? People who tested back in the day, which 
again, maybe is only eight years ago, but it's like really long time in the context of this technology. Those people had time to digest it and maybe in some cases do better than nowadays you test and you you might just look at your results and for the very first time you look at them, you're seeing a half sibling or you're seeing six half siblings. Maybe you weren't told you were donor conceived and they're all showing up as, as half siblings to you. And that is really hard to process in a short amount of time. I saw in the back of your book, you referenced Danny Shapiro's inheritance and Danny has been on this podcast and I've done events with her. And I also inhaled that book similar to your book in, in just the, the thrill seeking of the like discovery process when your whole identity is sort of shifting. And hers was an example of a modern day experience where she could figure, she figured the whole thing out really quickly. I mean, it was still interesting to read, but it was fast from the time she got her results. Whereas Alice, as you said, is, is very slow. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it does make it easier to, to process the longer it takes, but either way, when you find something out, that's a big piece of news like that, or, or you find out you have a child, I don't know, all these weird things, you know, I don't know. It's a whole new world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, I think like the era of family secrets is is like basically over. I have a friend who had a baby with a donor and she's like, no, no, we're, you know, we're not going to talk about that. And I'm like, you know, your kids are going to figure it out that, you know, he, and she's like, we we don't even can think of that person as a person. I'm like, right, but that person actually is a person. He could be like passing you on the street every day and your kids are going to want to find that out. Like, it's just so hard. Like you can convince yourself, I think of so many Mm -hmm. things. And yet, is the information really yours? Do the kids, right, that's a profound question. Do the kids know their their donor conceived? I mean, they must. Yes, they, they have to. So this question of, like, what is our obligation to talk about and to, and to admit to is a really interesting one, right? Because, and you see this a lot in the arena of donor conceived individuals who are like, I was not party to any agreements made mm-hmm. about the anonymity of my donor or the notion that I should be severed from the person who donated half of my genetic material, right? You all made that agreement before I was around. And now you want me to be like, bound by it, right? And it's complicated because on the one hand, you know, donor sperm has made possible many families that would not have been possible otherwise. And that's a really like amazing thing. It's a really wonderful thing. And at the same time, you know, donor anonymity is moot because of, because of DNA testing. It doesn't, it literally doesn't exist anymore. And a lot of people feel strongly that they want to know their genetic origins. So that matters too, right? It's not the whole picture. It's not like suddenly you're no longer, you know, in love with and, you know, in a wonderful place with your family that raised you, but people still have this desire to know the rest of the story. It's, I think of it as like, you're writing your own life narrative. And if you don't know at the beginning, how do you tell the rest? And you see there's this nascent movement to talk about genetic identity and genetic origins. There's like an organization that started up. It's becoming a kind of a movement. And I think it's, you know, DNA testing that's basically started it because before the technology to create people in this way was there, but the, um, the, the technology to allow those people when they, you know, grew up to understand themselves was never there. And now it is. Crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) So tell me a little more about you. Like, how did you become a feature writer to begin with? How did, I know you've written for like every publication under the sun at this point. How did you get that training? How did you develop all that and get to sort of this point? 
Yeah. So I started as an intern at the Washington Post after college. And I was writing for their daily feature section, which is called Style. And Style is not about fashion. But sometimes people who don't read the Post think that. But it's it's really a daily feature section. And we, we cover everything, politics, art, celebrities, interesting subcultures in Washington, you know, and I got to write all those kinds of stories. And then I left the post after about 10 years, 11 years, and I was an editor there um, before I left. And I started freelancing because I wanted to start a family back in New York, which is where I'm from. And I just got more and more interested in science writing, you know, and, and this idea that we can better understand ourselves through science. And that's sort of how I landed I landed in writing about DNA testing. But it was after it was after many stints writing about like, you know, sports. Like I went to the Winter Olympics in, you know, in Italy in 2006. And I, I covered the Michael Jackson molestation trial in California. Like mm-hmm. there, all these like sort of various kind of experiences that led me to really wanting to write about people's intimate lives. And so that's sort of like where I've gone over time is, is sort of away from famous people <laughs> and towards like sort of ordinary people with extraordinary stories. I thought it was so interesting before how you said, you know, you're so drawn to understanding human behavior and like even consumer behavior really as an offshoot, because I find that totally fascinating also. I mean, I've, <laughs> I remember in college being like, I'm really interested in understanding consumer behavior. What, like, what is that? What should I do? <laughs> like, what's the next thing? I always wanted to be one of those people who like sat there and listened to a focus group and, and like wrote things down and asked them questions. Like, I always wanted to do that. I once did a two or three part series just on jeans and like why people buy the jeans that they buy and why certain brands take off and are considered luxurious and others aren't. So I totally get that. I interned one summer at an ad agency in the brand planning group. And that's what we did. We like, I I did, I watched all those focus groups and like took notes and I, I wasn't in the room, but like I could watch the, I don't know, videos or whatever and like come up with reports and I'm like, so interesting. <laughs> Pepperidge Farm cookies. Who knew? You know, Fisher Price toys. Anyway. uh, Brands are controlling us without us even knowing it. Exactly. I just think there's something like when you're used to being more of an observer in a way of, right, like I'm, and I feel like you are too, you notice everything. Like you notice all the ins and outs and that's why you can delve so deep. I don't know. Like my favorite thing to do is just like when I find someone that interests me, you know, they have a really interesting story, like travel to them and like sit with them for days you know, eat with them and talk to them and watch them while they're working, that kind of fly on the wall stuff. I love that stuff. Like, I just think people are so interesting, you know, and and the choices that they make and the different ways that they can be. And so, I mean, I think to circle back to some of the people like, so I actually first wrote the story of Alice for the Washington Post, right? So it was like a shorter, it was a, it was a newspaper story. It was 2017. And literally the way that the book came to be was the email that I got in response. So there were like over 400 in the first few weeks. And they were like, let me tell you about my DNA surprise. Let me tell you how DNA changed my life. Let me tell you this story. Oh my gosh. And like getting on the phone and talking to people and hearing how they processed and responded to it. And they're very different, right? Like some people are like responding with this like openness. Some people are very closed down. Some people are like incredibly anxious, understandably, because there's this sense when your identity is threatened, you feel completely displaced. Like, you don't even know, like, does anything make sense? You don't know where you're standing on this earth kind of thing. So that like, to me, having all those conversations was such an enormous privilege. And it was as I was talking to those people and hearing that all the different ways that can play out that I thought, okay, 
Like this is more than one woman's story or or a hundred people's story. This is like a cultural phenomenon. Let me this deserves this deserves to be a book. Well, it was a really great book. <laughs> you. It really was. It was like you know, I know I said it before, but just so page turning. And I don't know. I feel like I'm so desperate these days for something to take my mind off the real world. And this was perfect because it totally kept my attention. And that's always what I'm looking for. Are you working on anything new now? So I'm working on trying to figure out what to do with my kids all day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let me me know what you come up with on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm editing a magazine story that I wrote like in January that, you know, before all this happened. And I am, yeah, I am thinking about next steps in terms of like maybe another book, but I haven't gotten far enough that I have anything to report. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Having gone through this process, do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Mm, That's a really good question. I would say on a practical level, I really liked Scrivener which is a software that you can write in and it's so much better for writing a book than Word. And on a slightly less practical and existential level, I really like outlines. And outline is a bit of an existential thing because it's really like a roadmap for where you're going to go. And so it sounds like a small thing, but it's actually an incredibly important thing in terms of understanding the scope of what you're reporting and your writing is going to be and the bigger message and the thematics. And then the last thing I'd say is that I think writing a book is a leap of faith. I think it's unlike anything else. You know, I've been running for a while and I wound up training for a half marathon and it was like training for a marathon and then an ultra marathon and then maybe more, right? Because it just kept going. It never ended. It was, you know, years of kind of this hunkering down, not seeing my family and working weekends and all this stuff. And yet the exchange for that, in exchange for that devotion and investment, you get something that's unlike anything you can achieve by just writing like an essay or a reported magazine piece or anything like that. I'm talking about it from the perspective of being a reporter and writing nonfiction. Like you go deeper, you achieve more, you know more, and it's transformative. And I loved it. I loved the process of writing a book. I I just thought it was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, tell me what you got back. You said it's like bigger than anything else. Give me an example. Like, tell me what you felt. How great was it? So, you know, I've spent most of my career like doing things that were more bite-sized. So I might spend a couple of days on a story or a few weeks or sometimes a few months even. And even those pieces that I wrote that were like more immersive where like I reported a story on a school shooting and I spent months writing it and I went to this town a few times and I spent a lot of time with the people. Like even that, now looking back, I see, oh, I was barely scratching the surface. When you spend that much time with a topic, you get to know it in like a different way. And I really liked getting up each morning and knowing what I was doing and feeling like I was invested in a project that was so much bigger than me. I like that sense of direction. I like the idea that you could take a single topic and you could look at it from all these different perspectives, right? So DNA testing, you have the science of it, you have the business you have the effect on interpersonal and intimate relationships, but you also have like the philosophy of it. You have the kind of questions of like, how much are we tending towards a kind of genetic essentialism and how much do we have to kind of be careful about that? You have all sorts of questions about how do we understand biological difference? You have the kind of bioethical angle. So you take a single topic and you can kind of turn it. And as you turn it, you see more and more angles that you can kind of consider And it's like, as if the more you know, the bigger it gets, the bigger the project gets. 
And I, I guess just being so involved in something so big and something so, I think, meaningful, like essential questions about like what makes us who we are. And you, we think about these as human beings, these questions, who am I? I found that to be immersive and absorbing and just like a wonderful process. And was there anything in the payoff of actually having it out in the world and like reader response? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I get emails, you know, all the time from people, LinkedIn and through my website and through Facebook. And they're like, you know, thank you for writing this book. And I, I need to tell you what happened to me. And sometimes what should I do? And, and I say, you know, thank you for sharing. And here's what other people have told me. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to give you advice, but like, here's what other people tell me who've been through your similar situation. And they're often right at the beginning. So they're really like emotionally in in like a really like difficult spot. They're often in a really difficult spot because they've just, they've just tested and they're trying to, they have multiple siblings through the same donor father and they're trying to, and then suddenly they've uncovered their donor father's identity. And now they're trying to figure out how do I approach this person? It's this weird thing. Like no one's figured out the right infrastructure to support people, right? There's no like mental health infrastructure. There's no official guidance. Like how do you write a letter to your genetic father? Can somebody please write like a book about that, right? I mean, you you could really literally write an entire book just about that. That's your, there you go. You got your next project. (laughs) There's Facebook groups, there's support groups, there's starting to be psychologists, there's a wonderful genetic counselor who offers advice, there's blogs, but there's not like a lot in the way of formal organizations, although they're starting to exist, or kind of formal like guidance. And you just see everyone's their own bioethicist trying to navigate this new territory on their own with advice from other people. And it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky place to be. Very true. Well, at least yeah. we have people like you, you know, diving deep into it and <laughs> helping the rest of us understand it, and, which is great. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, Libby. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And thanks for entertaining me so much with your book and making me think about all the big questions in life. And yeah, thanks for sharing your experience. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's just been such a treat to talk to you and such great questions, such thoughtful questions. So oh, thank you. Thanks. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll meet in real life one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good luck entertaining your kids. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Body Blast Thursday, one of the last days of my July book blast. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from a ballerina or a DNA specialist or a yoga aficionado. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.